You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon from uh, Lockdown London and greetings from the Overseas Development Institute. And uh, I'm sure I'm, we're going to be talking to be lots of people in their homes today. A really sort of quite unusual setting for us to be having a discussion like this on universal health coverage. Um, so my name is Robert Yates. I'm the director of the Centre for Universal Health at Chatham House and I'll be moderating today's uh, session. Hello. Um, we seem to uh, have had some connection issues with uh, Robbie Yates there. Um, so uh, as, a, as the first person to speak on the agenda, I, um, uh, I will uh, take over and outline some of the research that ODI has been doing on universal health coverage. Um, uh, so first of all, I want to say uh, thank you all so much for being here. Um, and for joining ODI uh, today on this discussion of UHC, which is always a very important topic, but is obviously particularly important right now. Um, um, so I want to outline some of the research we did, uh, particularly looking at how countries have achieved universality and reached the left behind. I am pre uh, presenting this research, but uh, it was also done in conjunction with Emma Salmon uh, and Anna Urutria. Um, uh, so we wanted to look at the motivations, difficulties and strategies for reaching the left behind. And we've done this through two papers. The first um, is a historical analysis of 49 countries and their move into or towards universal health coverage. And the second paper, I say, and this aims to understand um, how, why and the benefits of universal health coverage. The second paper will be a literature review on the costs and benefits of reaching the left behind. Um, so with the first paper, we included uh, all countries with more than 2 million people who've achieved universal health coverage, sorry, all lower and middle income countries, um, uh, provided they were countries at the point at which they achieved universal health coverage. Um, uh, we looked at, uh, because only one country, low income country, Rwanda, has achieved universal health coverage, we then also looked at the um, uh, the 10 best low-income countries on healthcare, and the outcome variable we used to judge best, which is obviously a very subjective term, was the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluations Quality uh, Access, uh, sorry, Health Access and Quality Index, which um, looks at 35 uh, treatable illnesses um, and how outcomes vary to them by country, which should show both the quality of care and the access that people have to care in those different countries. And finally, most high-income countries have universal health coverage. Um, uh, so instead of including all of them, we took the first six countries to uh, reach universal health coverage and the six countries with the best outcome outcomes, again, using the health access and quality index. And that gives you, this kind of gives you a map of the countries in the world that we looked to understand health outcomes for. Um, for each country, then, we uh, we undertook um, a, uh, a very detailed literature review uh, looking at uh, the political motivations behind how the country reached universal health coverage, the cost, um, the time it took, uh, 
um, and the strategies that were used. And this work was led by Anna Uritria. Uh, we also compared this to globally available data because country uh, literature could vary uh, um, and comparing them was somewhat subjective on our part. We use global data to compare outcomes using uh, indices of democratization, indices of healthcare outcomes to, uh, to test the subjective decisions we've made in a more objective way. And then we coded the results into different categories, uh, combining countries that were similar on different variables. Um, and this data is now publicly and freely available to everybody. And we uh, would be very happy if you were uh, to use it and find it useful, just please do cite us. Um, so uh, our main findings, most countries uh, who set out to achieve universal health or sorry, who achieve universal health coverage don't set out to achieve UHC in originally. They move into the healthcare space kind of in two phases or multiple little steps and in the, the uh, multiple little steps and two larger phases. The first step is to kind of look at um, why are uh, uh, fixing the worst excesses of kind of a free market healthcare system. Governments. Um, provide health coverage for the very poorest, the very oldest, and most commonly of all, mandating insurance for those in formal employment. Um, and this kind of incrementally moves forward. And then in most countries we looked at, we see then a very big shift towards universal health coverage. Sometimes these two phases are very close together, sometimes they're quite far apart. In the UK, for example, it was in 1910, um, that the government moved into healthcare coverage and mandated insurance for everybody formally employed. Um, this continued to increase throughout the 20s. And then in the 1948, the whole healthcare system was nationalized and there was a huge change in strategy to achieve universal health coverage. And this is fairly common to all the countries we looked at. Um, we, we then coded 14 different approaches or strategies to UHC and what we found uh, is that lots of countries achieve UHC in very different ways. Lots of countries use one set of strategies in the early phase for um, employed workers in the very poorest, um, and then move to a, a second approach. Um, and while comparing approaches between countries is very difficult, um, be, uh, because uh, it's not clear if some things are causal or if they're just correlation, one notable thing we did find is that countries that tend to provide healthcare publicly, either through government-run insurance schemes or through uh, a, a centralized system or local healthcare systems tend to have better outcomes than, company, than countries that mandate private healthcare or use the private sector to provide care. Now, it's not clear if that's causal or simply a correlation. That's something I think we'd be interested in more research on. Uh, the next one thing is countries tend to not go backwards. Uh, we see all across the countries in our data set, we see huge battles about whether or not the country could afford universal health coverage and whether or not this was something that wanted to do and very entrenched interests who are against universal health coverage. Um, and these battles tend to subside very quickly once universal health coverage is reached. Um, and instead, we see lots of arguments about iterative reform, about improving the package of healthcare, about improving the number of, of hospitals, but very few people arguing to unpick the universal health coverage that preceded it. Um, we found that wealth is not a major driver of UHC. Um, uh, lots of, about half the low and middle income countries in our data set, uh, the literature recited resource constraints as a major barrier to achieving universal health coverage. Uh, but these countries were only barely richer, 13% wealthier than the other half of low and middle income countries in our data set, 
where resources were not considered a major constraint. Um, and instead, resources seem to be a constraint in countries where government capacity tended to be lower. Um, uh, and what tends to be much more important than wealth overall appears to be growth rates um, and fiscal space. And this ties in with much of the other literature on, on universal health coverage, where countries' fiscal space or economy is growing, it's easier for countries to, uh, to make uh, uh, the changes necessary uh, to, to, or the political decisions to bring about universal health coverage. And the, the final big takeaway, and I think the biggest takeaway from this paper for me was that most countries don't just decide to move towards universal health coverage. 71% of the countries in our data in our data set made the decision to commit universal health coverage in the wake of some kind of crisis, whether it was um, war in the case of somewhere like the UK or Belgium, whether it was in the wake of genocide in Rwanda, of civil unrest in places like Mexico um, you, uh, and Colombia. In, in somewhere like Thailand, it was a mixture of civil unrest and a major economic crisis preceded it. Um, and these crises seem to break up the kind of the status quo and are preceded by questions about what a country wants to be um, and where it wants to move forward. And in these discussions, countries tend to often decide that they would like to create universal health coverage. Um, and it's interesting, I think, from our point of view at least, um, that these are often very difficult times for countries. And um, Britain created universal health coverage right after the Second World War, as did Belgium, um, uh, as did or Japan, and in, in expanded its healthcare in this period hugely. Um, while while money was very tight, um, and it emphasises how much universal health coverage is a political decision, much more than an economic or resource decision. Um, a couple of final thoughts. Uh, obviously, we were originally supposed to have a meeting in London um, to discuss this, and, and the world has changed radically in the, uh, the, the four months that we were planning this event. Um, uh, COVID, uh, and we are now facing what is probably the biggest collective world crisis since the 1940s. Um, uh, COVID-19 shows the need for universal health coverage and the need to protect people across the world and how we're all vulnerable uh, when one person somewhere picks up an infection that goes untreated, it can spread rapidly and impact us all. But it also, I think, hopefully will help change the narrative around universal health coverage, um, because this, like other crises, will pass. And hopefully in the reconstructive phase, we can have a, um, we can have a broader conversation about the healthcare needs that we want, um, as seems to be happening already in, in some countries. And finally, I wanted to quickly dis uh, flag that we have a forthcoming literature review. Uh, where we have tried to understand how to reach uh, the left behind groups. Um, and this will be out at the end of the month. We looked at the social, physical and economic barriers that impact different people and uh, their access to healthcare and how these uh, barriers can be overcome and why they should be overcome. Um, and that's kind of a... Um, that's kind of an outline of the research that ODI has been doing in universal health coverage. Uh, so thank you very much. And uh, I can't tell from here, but hopefully Rob is back on the line. <laughs> yes, I hope I am back on the line. Sort of, how is that? Is that, is that? is that a bit better? I've, I'm virtually sitting on top of the server now. Yeah, that is better. 
incredibly sorry. I, you know, this is what we're all dealing with these days with this new technology. And my children swear blind that was nothing to do with them being on uh, Netflix or on whatever. But uh, th there you go. Well, Anthony, th thank you very much indeed uh, for, for stepping in so quickly there. And, and uh, I think it's absolutely fascinating research that ODI have been doing, particularly as you're emphasising the the very important politics behind this and, and that it's not just a matter of wealth that determines uh, the degree to which countries are moving towards UHC, but it is this, this nebulous thing about political commitment and, and the extent to which politicians are running with this agenda. And of course, in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, uh, it cannot be more political, you know, heads of state appearing on television night after night talking about what they're doing. So obviously the, the politicians of the world uh, are very much looking at health and health reforms at the moment. And so I'd like to sort of throw this over to our panelists now about, you know, what's their perspective on, on um, you know, what politicians should be doing at the moment. And if I could maybe start with you, Calypso, um, what do you think sort of policymakers should be doing in, in terms of allocating resources? This is a big area of interest of yours, I know, and negotiating some of the difficult trade-offs that need to be made on the route to UHC. Thank you, Rob, and thank you, Anthony, and ODI for uh, for having me, and to all of you for being online. Um, I think priority setting is obviously of critical importance, and um, when I was preparing for this, we hadn't realized, at least I hadn't realized, the scale of COVID, the COVID crisis. So I, I, I have to talk a little bit, I think, about priority setting in the uh, COVID era, uh, because a lot of uh, the way uh, national governments and indeed the whole of the globe is responding to the crisis uh, is about setting priorities and it's about priority setting within uh, the COVID response. For instance, we're seeing uh, massive mobilization to support procurement of uh, various commodities from protective equipment, masks, oxygen, all the way to uh, ventilators, uh, especially for poor uh, nations. Uh, and again, uh, there's priority setting in action there. How do you decide uh, and who decides what ought to be purchased first. Uh, then priority setting beyond COVID, we've mentioned briefly amongst ourselves before we went online, that um, uh, decisions are being made implicitly or explicitly, explicitly to, uh, for example, um, uh, suspend vaccination campaigns. Um, in the UK, we've stopped screening for breast and bowel cancer. We're seeing uh, monumental reductions in emergency admissions for asthma, for instance, uh, or uh, heart attacks. We know that these things have not stopped happening uh, and, and they will have a very real uh, toll on people's lives. And then, of course, priority setting uh, beyond health, across other social sectors, the human capital impacts of the crisis. We've seen school closures around the world, uh, including in developing countries, which were some of the first to introduce school closures on an unprecedented scale. It's never happened before that uh, schools are closed almost across the whole of the globe. And we don't really know what the implications of that uh, of this are and whether and how we can restart schooling, especially in some of the poorer, poorest countries. And then, of course, trade-offs across public and private sector, uh, formalizing whole sectors of the economy to attitudes on the part of debtors and, and uh, also poorer countries uh, towards debt levels. We're talking about direct cash transfers and helicopter money to keep uh, people at home. Uh, and of course, it depends uh, who you are as to whether you can afford 
some of these measures. So priority setting all around, and of course priority setting within UHC. Anthony uh, talked about uh, the fact, the finding that most countries actually didn't set out to achieve UHC, and I think that's really important to note. And also that most countries, in fact, no countries seem to have gone backwards having achieved UHC. And I know, Rob, you're a great proponent of UHC and of the uh, political capital that uh, a campaign to achieve UHC brings. Uh, and I think that's a really important and powerful lever. However, uh, perhaps, perhaps I'll sound and I'll finish by perhaps sounding a bit pessimistic and forgive me. Uh, I wonder uh, how the BC before COVID period uh, 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 compares to what we're experiencing now and what we will be experiencing. In, in the past, we saw, despite commitments to UHC, we saw uh, serious issues with uh, mobilizing resources domestically. We've seen uh, that the majority of uh, health spending growth actually comes from economic growth as opposed to budget prioritization of the healthcare budget. We've seen fast-growing economies in Africa in particular not prioritizing or, in fact, even deprioritizing health spending. That's all in the BC world. We've seen fungibility, perhaps, across sectors, if you take education. Um, and now, I think we're entering a, a, an era that's completely uncharted with unprecedented levels of debt, unemployment, social instability, uh, massive financial shocks, countries that dis rely on tourism, remittances, migration, movement. Uh, we've been, we're seeing a, a backlash against globalization. So the question is, I guess, will countries continue to invest in health? Will they see this as an opportunity or perhaps is it a, a massive detractor? Uh, will even a transition happen going forward? And, and finally, will universal healthcare coverage be attained by countries in sub-Saharan Africa and indeed sustained by Asian countries? Could we be seeing uh, uh, backtracking by countries that have done well and have committed to UHC in the context of the new uh, post-COVID uh, reality? So uh, thank you for having me again, and I look forward uh, to uh, my fellow speakers' comments and to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Th thank you very much indeed, Calypso. And, and you raised some very, very interesting points. I mean, it, it's uh, it's fascinating. What one would like to believe this is the great opportunity for people investing in health and UHC, and you know, this would be an obvious thing to do. But we live in a in a strange world, and you can see that there are potential backlashes against this, and, and that some leaders might not be so inclined to be truly truly universal and and sort of treat this in a in a multilateral way as well. So I'm sure these will be things we're going to come back to in the uh, the discussion in a moment. Um, but first of all, I'd like to sort of come to Katinji. Now, Katinji, you you are heavily involved in the global UHC movement, so you have this helicopter view as to what's happening uh, sort of across the world. But I also know that you're intrinsically involved in the developments in in Kenya and sub-Saharan Africa. So I was just wondering what what's your perspective of of how this uh, pandemic is playing out in Africa and the implications for UHC, maybe particularly thinking of Kenya and South Africa? Hmm. Uh, thanks, thanks, Rob. And uh, yes, it's a very interesting times, actually. Um, at a global level on UHC, I, because I co chair UHC 2030, we've had conversations around how this is the moment to increase the political pressure to accelerate UHC because the COVID 19 has basically exposed our underbellies. It has exposed yeah. that uh, most of the talk we've been having has not translated into action. And this is the time that those who did not convert the talk into the walk are actually being uh, you know, fairly exposed in terms of uh, the health system strength or the health system capacity. 
and access capacity. So we, we on one hand, we have uh, a situation that is going to, um, in, you know, uh, apply extreme pressure on the health systems in sub-Saharan Africa, pressure on health systems that already have been suboptimal, largely. We know that even across uh, Africa, if you look at Kenya, you look at South Africa, Kenya was just starting its plans for universal coverage. We have actually been working piecemeal, uh, introduced free maternal health. Uh, we started opening up for uh, removal user fees from the health facilities. That was ongoing, and we were about to launch to go to scale. Uh, actually, the plans were that we would go to scale by the mid this year, including a full reform of the National Healthy, uh, you know, health, health Insurance Fund to be able to be a, a key vehicle for offering social health insurance. South Africa had just started to, to, to take through their National Health Insurance Bill through Parliament. It was up for debate. It was at approval level. And uh, you know South Africa is one of those countries that um, is a tale of two cities where you have a rich community that gobbles up 47% of the total healthcare um, uh, expenditure, and uh, they're only 16%, and you have the other 84 struggling with a balance of, of 50%. And now you have this that is happening. It re you know, if, what we've noticed, if I was to just share my, my learnings uh, in this uh, COVID period, is that obviously access even to testing, access to care has been obviously more constrained for those who can afford than for those who can afford. We have seen initially when testing started, people could go to private laboratories and they could send their samples to South Africa. That was Kenya specifically, and they could get their test back. But the poor had no way out until they waited for the public health system to be able to provide the testing to them. So, of course, we've seen the effect of the inadequate health system on, on, uh, on, 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 uh, on the response of COVID. But let me come more specifically to how this is going to impact UHC and is going to impact uh, these countries, not only Kenya and South Africa, but Ghana and others that are, uh, and Rwanda that are on this journey. First is that we know, I have seen the presentation done uh, by ODI that says, Really, um, you know, uh, the economic affordability is not really a big deal. It's a political choice. But at the same time, governments tend to use the fiscal space as a key excuse to moving forward on UHC. So reflecting on the fiscal space, you have several factors that are going to upset and, and kind of for reluctant governments, give them more reason why they can actually give excuses as to why they, they can't afford to move forward on UHC. One, is that we expect there are going to be massive job losses. There's going to be uh, massive reductions in GDP. I saw a report by McKinsey that was estimating 10% GDP reduction this year, uh, you know, from a projected growth of almost 3% to a projected decline of about 4 or 5%. And uh, this is going to, of course, put pressure on, uh, on, on revenues for government. That's number one. Number two is that we are getting government's... Um, uh, also starting to look at economic uh, protection of the people. Therefore, we have countries like Kenya reducing uh, value-added tax from 16 to 14%. We've, uh, we have a reduction of peers yuan in you know, personal tax coming down from 30% to 25%, which means government revenue is going to be under more pressure. You, know? uh, you have job losses, you have lower tax collection. So it is time for the government to be bold and say that actually health and lack of health access is one of the biggest causes of poverty. And this is the time to actually start to put social health insurance as a social safety net for people. In, instead of just saying you're going to reduce tax, because then you reduce tax, 
you reduce tax on employed, you're reducing tax on corporations. You're basically giving tax breaks to people who can afford healthcare, but you're not giving uh, economic uh, rescue to people who don't have tax to pay anyway. So the only way to extend a hand to people who have no taxes to pay is to give them social health insurance so that you reduce their expenditure on, on, health, on health needs. So that is one of the things that I would like to say. The next thing is how this is going to impact quality of care. Now we know, of course, that we have seen that many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, despite a suboptimal health system, have already started to put uh, you know, solutions to reducing transmission or reducing uh, transmission by putting curfew, for example. You know, you cannot move beyond 7 p.m. In Uganda, we have seen they have reduced public transport, public transport, private cars, and no movement at all on, or unless you're on foot. Uh, in South Africa, we've seen a total lockdown. This is going to have a huge impact on access to care because decision-making on when to go seek care, when you know there is a curfew, when you know you can't find public transport, is going to be delayed. So we are going to start to see a big pressure on quality, which is a big part of universal health coverage. Not to mention, I know that uh, Susan will talk a little more about the effect on maternal health, child health. Uh, we have seen gender-based violence going up. So we have a major issue on quality. So for me, uh, in my, you know, as I close my remarks, is to say that um, even as COVID-19 brings distracted priorities for the, for the state, because the state is now in response mode, emergency mode, we must put back the conversation on universal health coverage on the table because it, uh, you know, uh, rescue on out of pocket, not only for COVID, but also uh, on everything else, is key, providing people rescue uh, on out-of-pocket for vaccination, for maternal health, for everything else we're doing is key. So it is time to think and to rethink and to re-emphasize our plans on universal health coverage during COVID and post-COVID. And I would like to stop there, but I know that it's going to come up. But before I stop, remember uh, that the, the closure of schools is something that we need to think about very carefully because nutrition is one of the biggest causes of poor health. And uh, when schools close, we know many countries have school feeding programs. Now kids are home. So you're going to end up with increased uh, malnourishment of children. And secondly, household incomes are coming down because of loss of jobs, job, uh, you know, salary cuts. And therefore, even when children are at home, the families will not be able to adequately feed them. And therefore, we also expect to see a rising malnutrition, which is going to again have a boomerang effect on all the other areas. So I stop there, and uh, unless there are any questions or comments. Thank you, Bob. Rob. Fantastic, Itinji, and thank you so much for broadening it out, you know, beyond the health sector, because we very much have to take into account the impact on education and, and nutrition, just like you're saying. And I think this vital that, you know, we get our act together in articulating the case for increased uh, investment in health, because you are dead right, there's going to be an almighty battle over When you look at that, that last financial crash, when, which resulted in austerity, you know, that actually cut the health spending in many circumstances, that, that would be a disaster. So we need to be much better for investment in health later. And, you know, one of those areas I'm sure we'd be looking at, and you, you've alluded to it, is, is vaccination. And if I can come to, to Susan now, you know, that, that um, everyone recognises the importance of universality when it comes to vaccines, and, and Gabby's been very, very strong on that, particularly around routine immunisations. How do you see this COVID-19 affecting, you know, the move to universal vaccination and potentially 
also, of course, you know, the, a COVID-19 vaccine and how important it would be to get that out to the, the entire world. So, Susan, over to you. Thanks very much, and thanks to the other speakers as well for these perspectives. I mean, for us, we're very worried. We've just spent the last 20 years um, uh, working with 73 countries to get 760 million people some uh, vaccinations that saved 13 and a half million lives. And we were moving into the next Gavi strategy, which is to uh, to start to focus on zero dose children. And so that is the ones that don't get DTP, that don't get the first um, immunisation. And that's an absolute marker for poverty. The two out of three children who, who don't get any doses of immunisation are also suffering. Those families and those communities are also suffering a lack of health services and a lack of access. So we were moving to really focus there. This is where urban poor, this is about gender, this is about conflict, this is about people on the move. And with COVID coming in and the diversion of health resources, um, that's going to make it even harder. And as, as Gathinji says, you're getting very mixed messages, stay home and isolate, that makes routine immunisation very difficult. So not only do you have the, the impact or the threat of, um, of the, the COVID disease, we also then have a delay in routine immunisation or in catch-up immunisations, and that means we're going to have more problems down the track. That means that um, entire uh, age cohorts could potentially miss out on really important vaccines. And so then we're talking about measles, we're talking about polio. And, and if you think about um, Ebola in, in DRC, the, two to three times as many people um, had, a, had an issue with measles as well. So you have these compounding threats that happen. And I think, um, I think I'd like to take the conversation into a dimension that I think Githinji was getting towards, the, the haves and the have-nots under universal health, because there are those who can get access and there are those who have almost no access. And so um, listening to the ODI presentation when you were talking about UHC, I think um, the notion of progressive universalism is there to actually start to focus when we get enough time for a breath to start to focus on the area where there is the most need and to build out the health system from there. Then you have the opportunity with immunisation because it's the one that gets to 90% um, of people, it is the, the widest health um, support and intervention that's offered, you have the opportunity then for other touch points in health services. So when children are born, you can talk about deworming or malarial nets or post-maternal care, and you can work through the life course then as children come in for immunisation right up to the point of, of young girls who, who may need support in terms of education or checking on child marriage or um, menstrual advice or things like that. So you get you get many opportunities for touch points with immunisation, which allow you to apply that to a universal healthcare perspective, because that's about access and support. And then, as Gathinji mentioned, there's also the financial dimension as well. Um, now, I think uh, with with COVID, we really need to then think in terms of policymakers. There's the immediate crisis and response, but then what does this actually mean for how we organise 
our policy sectors. And you know, I was thinking back, I was I went through the SDGs and in the SDGs we were saying, well, everything is linked to something else. And we, we got the heads of state there and we got the ministers there and they were kind of talking theoretically. But I think COVID has shown like nothing else how how a fundamental health crisis like this can have immediate economic impacts in the short term and in the longer term. It can have immediate humanitarian impacts, immediate social impacts. So I think you know, if there are any opportunities out of this, one is I think the the minds of the political decision makers are absolutely seized on this issue. And while they are, what is it that we can get in terms of that change? And, and I'm thinking again back to Anthony's presentation, it was after a crisis for some countries that they made an active decision to pursue the universal health coverage path. So what is it about this crisis that can focus the minds of policymakers on the very real and tangible interactions here that between health and the economy and and uh, and society and peace and 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 also what is it that we can do with this to really show that some people the people who have who have so little are the ones in most need of support so that is the the zero dose if you like or the or the the people in the most vulnerable situations and then you're starting to think about gender and you're starting to think about conflict and and fragility i think I think thinking in terms of the short and the long-term response is is very important here, but it's also thinking about, well, what are the costs of this in the other areas? So as, as unfunded, um, low-capacity health systems where there isn't enough surveillance, there aren't enough tests, there aren't enough laboratories, where health workers, where there's not enough health workers, how can we how can we focus um, to support those health systems? And then how can we start building out and really properly strengthening the health systems and properly strengthening budget allocations in the future? I think I'll, I'll leave it there for the opening remarks, but but they were the dimensions I wanted to come in on. Great, thank thank you very much indeed, Susan. And I think that you've, you've reflected on lots of questions there that I'd very much like us to discuss as a group now going forward, you know, very much thinking about now that we have the politicians' attention on health and, and you know, health coverage, you know, what, how are we going to use this? What arguments uh, are we going to use? Um, before I, I sort of, you know, specifically turn this to, to the panel, very much encourage, you know, those watching to send in your questions. We've got one or two coming in already that I'm I'm keeping an eye on, but, but uh, we're very keen to hear your perspectives from your countries. And I think, you know, a point that Susan was making there now, you know, about the potential for using this situation to catalyze UHC reforms in countries. And I'm sure that lots of us are thinking, you know, where are going to be the countries that we could potentially, you know, have this impact that, that, that might have been uh, on the verge of, of implementing UHC reforms, that this has perhaps galvanized minds and, and really encouraged people to, to think about these things. So particularly those of you, um, you know, around the world who are joining, who think this might be the time now for UHC in your country, we'd love to hear from you and, and you know, sort of maybe share thoughts with you about how we can work with you. Um, but first of all, I'd sort of like to sort of put it to the panel, you know, that we have been 
very much promoting the idea of universal health coverage and, and we've seen every country in the world sign up to it at the United Nations um, on numerous occasions in, in, in the last decade, but most recently last September. When we are perhaps sort of trying to get the attention of a head of state or a ministry of finance, what do you think are the key lessons that we've learned? You know, that, that's looking, you know, maybe reflecting on the ODI research as well, and maybe even come to, to Anthony first on this. Um, what do we think, you know, are the key lessons that we say, this generally is, is a strategy that seems to work better than others? And maybe as well, what strategies don't work when moving towards universal? Um. In in terms of what strategies work, it, it 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 seems to and the main I mean the main thing is it seems to be about getting them on side. Uh, we we saw a very large portion of the countries in our data set. I think it was about forty five percent had recently changed governments or changed leaders. Um, when uh, uh, in prior to bringing about universal health coverage, in in more than in in a uh, in a very large percentage, um, we saw widespread grassroots levels, you, uh, you trade unions, people marching on the streets, camp, um, people writing to their MPs, have all been shown to be very, exp um, um, very, uh, very important. And then I, I'm slightly less uh, pessimistic than the other people on the on the um, panel. I, the world has lost a huge amount of money right now. Economies are contracting, and that's a very difficult time to invest in healthcare. But there will be an expansion, presumably after this, when the crisis moves away, and and fiscal space will open up again. And and not just in our research, but in 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 the literature we've looked at elsewhere, it's that creation of fiscal space that seems to be so important. And so, uh, to give the UK as an example, just because that's where we are. Um, Britain was incredibly poor in the 1940s, but there was a lot of space opening up as they were no longer spending money on the Second World War. And so in the 70s, 80s, 90s, countries might have been much richer than they were in the 40s. But in the 40s, they had all of this money that they were spending on defense and they could now spend it on something else. Uh, hopefully soon, but some point in the near to medium term, we're likely to have all of this money that opening up as people go back to work, as we no longer have to uh, pay the salaries of people who are furloughed uh, as tax receipts come back in again. And and I'm hopeful, possibly just because I'm an optimist, that we can use some of that fiscal space as the, is the point at which we can channel that energy back into healthcare, alongside the argument that not investing in healthcare is incredibly damaging to the to the medium and the uh, term and long term, as we have seen in this crisis. What about other panelists? What what do you think in in terms of you know lessons that we've been learning about what UHC strategies tend to work and which which don't work? I think um, for us, when when we're talking with um, with finance ministers, health ministers, and 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 presidents and prime ministers, I mean you can get so different arguments or different discussions that work. Um, to different circumstances, and I think that's another another lesson here is it is so contextual. But generally, the return on investment just and we haven't talked about primary healthcare here as well. But so primary healthcare is a very big part of universal health coverage, and it is it is the cheapest thing that you can do to protect the most people for for a dollar 
um, spent on vaccines, you're saving 54 in terms of other health costs or having healthy, productive members of society. So it is an incredibly cheap investment. So you can talk about, uh, you can, um, I guess, attract decision makers to be interested through the positive side of this. But also, if we look at this, I mean, the, I saw some estimates about 2.7 trillion so far, the cost and estimate around COVID. And no governments want to be facing economic shutdown year after year as something like this could circulate. Governments do not want to be facing this as an endemic issue in their country. So I think it is definitely in the economic interest to be able to do this and to be able to have decent enough healthcare that you've got good surveillance, you've got good primary healthcare, you've got good immunisation, you have good facilities, you have well-funded health workforce. Um, I think it's also in their social interest as well. And I think that this crisis really is the most tangible example I've seen at absolutely focusing uh, their attention on this. Thanks. The, actually, there was one other point I was going to make, which is if there's another bright light in this, I'm not completely pessimistic, Anthony, that, that one of the things we've seen is the extraordinary speed um, and goodwill at which data is being shared across countries to find out about this virus, to learn about it, to talk about potential treatments, to talk about getting vaccine candidates going. I mean, we're working with a lot of manufacturers and with WHO already on how can we support vaccine development um, and vaccine candidates and then what could we think about in terms of the manufacturing side. And then for us, because as Gavi we work with low income countries, there's a big part of the conversation on access too, to make sure that everyone gets their access to a vaccine when it does become available. So I do think we've seen phenomenal goodwill in data sharing so far um, to face a global situation together. So I think we can build off of things like this going forward. Right. Yeah, and, uh, Rob, if I could comment on this. That, that, um, some of the questions that the, the things we've learned actually we are learning under this COVID thing also things that we've learned uh, generally. Number one, if you look at the African Union now, they have been looking at what their continental response to COVID-19 is. And they have classified it into three pillars. Pillar one is preventing transmission. If you think about preventing transmission, it's a lot of community engagement and people engagement and people centered and people empowerment. It's, you know, you can't do it top, top down. In fact, one of the complaints I've had is governments are tending to focus all their responses on the daily brief and the government policies rather than how to engage communities and make them part of the day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute response. So uh, that's that's one of them. The next one has been to prevent death, which has a lot to do with health system capacity, which we really haven't, haven't invested in a lot in terms of ensuring access for everyone. So that's a major blind spot for the continent, even within their strategy. And the third point, the third pillar of the strategy is preventing harm, which is more the the response and how it affects people's livelihoods and lifestyles. So those are the three pillars. If you have look at what we've learned, uh, and I would probably like to look at now uh, what UHC 2030, the work we've done on UHC. We've said that there, there are six things, there are six, seven things that we think are important for people to look at. And those things are even more important, more relevant now. One yeah. is political leadership beyond health. 
that is really looking at health as a social contract. And governments are now facing that social contract now and saying, we wish we signed this contract earlier. Because now they are, the people are facing them and saying, what are you doing for us? We are about to die. This danger is facing us. So can you tell us? So that's the first thing that you've learned. Political leadership, completely important. And going back to Anthony's point, it's not about the economic ability. It's also the political decision-making. So political leadership is critical. The second point is this issue about no one left behind, which Anthony also reflected on. That actually, and I think even Susan talked about this, that the issue around ensuring we identify who are the people left behind in a data-visible manner, Women and girls, we are already seeing how they are facing the blunt of this through gender violence. We have people who don't have access at all. We should have looked at them earlier and provided them social safety net, including social health insurance for free that is publicly funded. So that bit about no one left behind is also glaring in our face right now. The next thing is about quality of care. And quality of care is about if you have Germany with 40 ICU beds per thousand, Italy with seven per thousand. Africa, we are talking about one bed per thousand. What quality of care would we be able to offer if you actually had excessive capacity requirements on the health system? The next issue is about uh, regulation and legislation. We've seen price movements in COVID-19 that are beyond human comprehension on supply chain. Governments are, because we never really looked at the issue of price regulation in the pharmaceutical, price regulation in commodities, you know, Gavi has worked a lot on price moderation and, and ensuring that you have a supply chain that's controlled. We have not done that in many other sectors. So you are seeing, for example, basic commodities being sold at a hundred or a thousand times more than they were before. And this is affecting the health system. So this brings into light the need for legislation and the regulation for in the health sector. The fifth point is about more money. We've talked about that and also better use of the money. Where do we put our money? And finally, how do we move together for UHC for these pandemic responses? I am talking about right now, if you look at the impact on education, agriculture is going to be disrupted. Flow of food, even farmers focusing on planting is going to be disrupted. You know, uh, transfer of commodities, food moving from one area to another. Borders are closed. So how do we ensure food security in countries that import from others? And how does that get disrupted? So we, it shows that actually health is not a health sector issue. It is a multi-sectoral issue, which uh, Susan has reflected on, on talking about primary healthcare, because primary healthcare is not about healthcare. It's about multi-sectorality, it's about empowerment of communities. So all these six points, including gender equality, come into light right now. And those are things we've learned that we need to reflect on during the, the, the pandemic and post-pandemic to achieve UHC, as all countries have signed up to in the UHC declaration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Calypso, I was wondering specifically, um, you know, when sort of talking to heads of state about lessons learned on, on UHC, what messages might you have for them, you know, around resource allocations? I mean, you, you, do, do you I, think, you know, that we need to be articulating before, before, uh, PHC? Sorry, Katinja, I would like to hand this over to Calypso as well, as she answers, because one of the challenges we are having in Sub-Saharan Africa is debt. You know, Sub-Saharan Africa countries have such huge debt that even if they collect 19% of their GDP, they allocate 22% of it to debt payment. This is the time to think about, as you think about resource allocation and fiscal space, how are we going to, if we are going to negotiate debt relief, because I've seen now the Prime Minister of Ethiopia and others asking for debt relief, can we make the debt relief conditional? 
that we will forgive this debt if it is going specifically to universal health coverage and social health insurance for people? Can we make it conditional? Over to you, Calypso. It, that's a good question. Calypso, you deal with that one. <laughs> <laughs> You're muted, I'm afraid. I'm muted. I'm sorry. Well, thank you for right. that. Uh, not at all challenging. And a big disclaimer: I'm not an economist by background. I'm a medic. But uh, I think I think it's really important to look at uh, uh, all these pressures and, as you've described, look across not just specifically health, but look at the other social policy sectors and also look at the public-private sector balance and what this means for countries as they move forward. Now, I think uh, there's a an absolute huge need for massive mobilization of resources well beyond what has been uh, talked about or indeed committed um, so far. Uh, we need to see, and, and, and some uh, colleagues at the Centre for Global Development have, have written about this, um, ex-IMF colleagues, uh, called for the rule book to be effectively, you know, uh, thrown away now in terms of uh, um, you know, good and bad debt in, ter in terms of uh, 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 credit worthiness, so that uh, even groups such as the IMF can come in with ma massive amounts of funds, uh, even at non-concessional rates, which are still well below uh, the, the high street rates that countries could get, um, in order for them to be able to protect some of these important social sectors. And debt, again, debt forgiveness moving, moving on now uh, is very important too. And all of these things need to pile up, be well articulated. Uh, we need to find and make up new rules for these big bureaucratic financing institutions. Uh, there's an article by Joseph Stiglitz today in The Guardian, and he's calling, he's, he's taking us back to um, Keynes and talks about the whole purpose of these Bretton Woods institutions. Why were they set up? They were set up to help people around the world. They were not set up to help accumulate surpluses in one part of the world. And, and uh, deficits in another. This is the time to revive that spirit and make humongous co commitments. Uh, and yes, can we make these commitments conditional? I think I think conditionality is a difficult world, word, especially in these circumstances. But I think being able to articulate the vision, or at least expect leaders, African leaders, to articulate the vision, a new vision, a new start, uh, this this sort of dark times, should be a conditionality if nothing else. So, yes, I, I, there I, I agree with you. Thank you very much, Calypso. And, and a question that I'd really like to pose now, you know, is that what one can be looking at things in generality, sort of globally, sort of saying that we need to move to, to UHC and this is potentially an opportunity. But where the rubber really hits the road on this will be when specific countries, nation states make decisions, good decisions to move in this direction. Looking across the world, and you know we're we're from different continents, and and you know with with sort of different interests, where where does the panel see the opportunity, the real opportunities now? Because one fears that there are some leaders who aren't taking this seriously. We know who they are, who are pretending it's not happening and burying their heads in the sand, and and are um, are very unlikely to to grasp this opportunity. But there'll be those that you think you know that maybe like. The UK and Japan and France coming out of the Second World War or Prime Minister Taksin after the Asian financial crisis might use this moment to really go for it. So looking around the world, where, where do you think those leaders might be? I mean, looking at specific countries, because I think that if we 
the UHC community can work with stakeholders in those countries to have those conversations with their heads of state, ministers of finance, then, you know, that, you know, that's maybe tens, hundreds of millions more people might get access to healthcare coming out of this crisis. So do, do we have any top tips as to where we might be looking and maybe to ask audience members as well to give us your suggestions? So any thoughts from the panel? Well, I mean, Gethinji and I were both involved in a process for the last couple of years, uh, which culminated in all of the heads of state signing up to a document which said, we believe in universal health coverage. We think there's really good reasons for it and we're going to move towards it. Now, I mean, I talked about it being contextual earlier and countries do move towards it at a slower or faster rate. There are some bright lights out there. I think Germany, Japan, my country, Australia. I mean, there are um, Rwanda, uh, Ghana. There's a bunch of countries that are really strong believers in this and moving towards it. And, and not only within their own health systems, but there's a bunch of countries that support other countries to move towards more primary health care or universal health care, whether it's issue specific or more more general um, health system strengthening as well. So I think, you know, Gethinji and I have sat in meetings where we've said, is this a moment or a movement? How do we create this as part of the UHC 2030 movement? How do we create and energize this uh, to go forward? So I mean, I mean, I'll turn over to Gethinji here. How do, how do you see it? Because you've been at those discussions as well. Yeah, um, well, I, one of the things, it, it's very interesting, I've been thinking about this, Rob, so there's an interesting uh, exercise that you and I should do. We should actually look at all the COVID-19 speeches made by all heads of state and look for yeah. how many times they mentioned universal health coverage in them. And uh, yeah. I think we should start tracking that. And that would be yeah, interesting, yeah. actually. Uh, mm. Because I think that, um, uh, you know, we, we need to, people need to see COVID-19 not in isolation. They need to see it as a health system issue. And uh, we, you know, a few of Bill Gates saying, you know, uh, we are not ready for the, for the next epidemic or the, the next pandemic. And it is true, we were not ready, but we didn't take it seriously. So the issue of seriousness also needs to come down to um, political leadership. So the G20 uh, needs to be talked to. And I think as UHC 2030, we have uh, discussed this issue. We have actually brought on board some uh, political big um, uh, big hitters as a political advisory, uh, including some of the elders uh, from uh, from your institution. And we are hoping that we can take this message to G20 that UHC is no longer a conversation of if, it's a conversation of every country must. And uh, we are seeing that. If we are going to be ready for the next pandemic, that's the only way we must do it as a world. And as we've said, UHC and global health security are two sides of the same coin. So in this particular uh, incident, even if Europe and America and North America, fingers crossed, statute would manage to bring down this uh, epidemic, they will never open their boundaries until Africa has managed it. You know, they'll never open their borders and therefore trade is going to be affected. You know, we have, there's no question about that. So it's not about a country to country issue now. Now it's time for global solidarity and we need to take that conversation to all the shining stars, but including, um, you know, the one that Susan has talked about, uh, but 
more the global architecture like G20, G7, they need to accurately table the health issue uh, as a global issue. And that's, that's uh, and, and also the UN security, the UN, Secu uh, the UN um, Security Council needs to discuss the global security as well. It's, not, it's no longer just a health issue. Sure, sure. Calypso, you want to come in? Um, so, sorry, Anthony, do you want to go first or? No, no, you, you go ahead. Okay. Uh, so two, two quick points, uh, if I may. So first of all, I was just thinking about looking at my diary uh, by accident, looking in the past rather than the future. And I was looking at all of the events I was involved in, or most of them in the, before Christmas had to do with aid transition. And I think if we're going to be uh, specific, as you say, Rob, and we ought to be beyond the sort of the generalities and the rhetoric, which is also important, um, I think we, we need to start trying to imagine what practically what the world will look like as we're emerging or, or some countries are emerging out of COVID. And I think uh, the issue of aid, the issue of co-financing or complete transition, transitioning away uh, TB products, for instance, TB drugs uh, to be paid for by countries or um, some of the uh, antiretrovirals or uh, certainly the Gavi transition, we need to rethink all of that in the new environment. Um, First of all, looking at what the finances will look like, what the vulnerable populations will be very different in terms of quality and quantity and how the global response can address that. So it's not going to be business as usual. And the second point that links to what uh, you both talked about just now is about uh, surveillance and governance in the post-COVID world. We're seeing uh, Trump tweeting against WHO. Here in the UK, the Foreign Office um, or rather the foreign, the, the foreign committee, which comprises parliamentarians from different, different uh, parties uh, uh, who care about foreign affairs, came out with a report calling for um, uh, a G20 group for public health. Uh, and again, criticized China and to some extent WHO for not being forthcoming with data soon enough. And I think there is a big, big risk here that we revert back to uh, um, uh, nation states or blocks uh, coming together uh, and polarizing the whole ecosystem, global ecosystem, which is exactly the opposite of what we need if we want to respond better to such uh, uh, crises in future. And what comes to mind, a colleague from uh, CGD, Masood Ahmed, raised that uh, a few weeks ago when this was starting, um, that uh, what he thought the parallels should be drawn perhaps not between uh, COVID and SARS, but perhaps between COVID and 9-11 when uh, the most powerful countries in the world came together and said, OK, anti-money anti laundry legislation, terrorist financing legislation, all these uh, major governance arrangements that were introduced, which left people who wanted to send money back to their families, laborers who wanted to send small amounts of money to their families, or indeed NGOs were supporting uh, very poor people across Africa and Asia, left them without bank accounts because uh, these measures are effectively targeting them. So let's be very careful so that we don't introduce governance arrangements, surveillance arrangements, a data collection mechanisms that are punitive uh, for, for poorer countries. Uh, and then we end up building walls and polarizing and keeping people out. I think that's a very big risk that the post-COVID governance era may end up uh, being very, a very negative uh, development in terms of uh, in terms of global development, if you like, and we need to caution against this all the time because it's going to be too late. These plans are being drafted as we speak. It's going to be too late if we wait until we're out of this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Very Anthony, you want to give it as well? Yeah, I just had one small point. So there, there, 
most of the countries that have this very badly at the moment are very high income countries. Um, uh, we've already seen in, in Ireland, where I'm from, Spain, which you mentioned earlier, have both nationalized essentially the top tier of their healthcare system. Ireland, for years battling about it, has essentially, at least in the short term, created universal health coverage. In New York, they've changed the rules around cost sharing in hospitals to make it easier and more efficient to get care in treating universal health coverage. And I think there's been a recognition from governments across Europe uh, and in some US states that that really you've got to link healthcare systems much better to deal with the the shock of universal health coverage. Those arguments will be less strong, but still true in in the in in the aftermath of COVID. And I wonder to what extent we might see in in low and middle income countries if they are unfortunate enough to see a spike in COVID cases, like Europe and North America have seen. To what extent? they will end up rapidly rolling out versions of universal health coverage or linking up healthcare systems to best treat the, the virus. And will those systems outlive the virus or will they be tempered? Mm -hmm. Very good question. And then actually that, that takes us into, I think, some of the questions that we're being asked from our, our audience. So, so th thank you, audience, for being so, so patient with us. And, and uh, I'd like to sort of come to some of these issues, particularly as they relate to low and middle income countries. And we have a number of questions around fragile states as well, sort of, you know, recognizing some of these uh, systems that are, are, are very weak uh, systems. And, and first of all, come to the, a question uh, very patiently asked by Gwen uh, Carlson, who's a, a master's student at Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh, and would like to, to ask, well, has, has pointed out that, yes, yeah, sure, uh, COVID-19 does present a window of opportunity, uh, particularly in countries, um, you know, coming out of conflict. But how does one deal with weak government capacity and weak political will? How, what, what's going to be the, the sort of solution, I, I guess, you know, just to sort of pick a sort of a country randomly, maybe like the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, you know, a very big, important country in, in, in Africa, um, which has been hit with a sort of a number of issues, not least, of course, the civil war about 10 years ago and coming out of Ebola. How, how is one really going to capitalize on this crisis and encourage governments like that to, to move much faster to UHC? Any thoughts? Rob, okay, Rob, let me, let me give it a go. This is not an easy question at all. Uh, as I said earlier, fragile states are even more fragile and more vulnerable to COVID-19. Uh, and uh, uh, states that have been in war and communities that have been in war or in movement are even more vulnerable because they, it means that, number one, they are uh, more exposed because some of the uh, public health advice that we give, wash your hands with running water and soap, social distance, wear a mask. That's not even a possibility when you're talking about some of these communities that are already disadvantaged by fragility. So I think that the first, the first thing is to say that uh, it's going to be difficult and therefore there's no straight answer. But I think to motivate these people is to take this opportunity to start a people's movement, empowerment of people, for people to understand and to own the response. I think even when we, Ebola was there, and you talk to WHO and Dr. Tedros specifically, you know, I remember him um, telling me that when, when he went to DR Congo, people asked, why are you here? Why were you not here when people are dying of measles, when people are dying of cholera? Why have you come now? You see, to, to, but if the people 
own this particular response, the pandemic response, then they can also own the future investments in the, in the, in the health sector that then protect them against future pandemics and future epidemics. I think that um, uh, it's not going to be enough uh, for us to convince political leaders. The people must then drive to the next step of accountability, holding their governments accountable uh, that actually they are going to do this. And I think that the best way to hold those people accountable is through the votes, is through the institution that exists in those countries. So this is the chance to actually include parliamentarians in the conversations. You know, that other arm of government, which is on legislation, uh, we have heard in many countries, you know, there were rumors in different countries that multiple members of parliament have been infected. Now, this is the time to actually make parliament wake up and do its work. Uh, because if you just wait on executive leadership, it may fail us. Uh, and therefore, I'm calling upon parliamentarians in whichever country to take advantage of this, to reform the health legislation in each country, to direct resources into health, and to force the executive to do the right thing. Um, I've got a couple of thoughts to add in here for Gwen's question as well, which is the model for Gavi is that we don't pay we don't work with donors to get 100% of the funds for the needs for vaccines and, and health systems strengthening in those countries. Every country pays something towards their vaccines. So it's, it's, it's not uh, right to think that nothing is happening. You, you find political will in different places. Um, you find weak capacity doesn't necessarily equal weak political will. If I think of uh, Central African Republic, that's weak capacity, there's been conflict, um, but I, I can't think of a more passionate person I've spoken to than the health minister of, of that country when he's talking about primary health care issues. So I think you need to look for the opportunities that you can. Certainly we work in a co-financing model with those countries and we have pretty good relationships. Um, it's uh, what COVID is going to do in terms of the distraction, uncapacitated, uh, all the diversion, I guess, for undercapacitated um, governments is going to be really, really difficult. So we're already working with governments to say, okay, what flexibilities do you need? How can we help with supply lines or how can we help with uh, different issues which we think you're going to be facing in the immediate crisis situation? I think. There's a second dimension to this too, which we've hedged on in the conversation a few times, but haven't really kind of named, and that's an issue around equity. And not just equity inside the country about who gets access to what services and how frequent those services are and the quality of care, but also equity between countries as well. And if, if we're not careful with COVID, we're gonna see some pretty we're going to be working through some pretty difficult times and we're already seeing that with medical supplies and equipment. Gathinji talked about that earlier. But, you know, there's a real issue there when a vaccine is available before it ramps up and there's enough supply. Who does get access and under what sort of circumstances is there access? And I think that brings me on to a third area, which is around budgets. And until governments put aside until governments see that it is an investment, not just in health, but it is a social investment, it is an investment in peace, it is an investment in the economy, it is an investment in education, um, it is an investment in the future, and put enough funding into budgets, 
And, and primary healthcare is a very small proportion of budgets, but until they put a decent enough budget amount year after year and, and, and build out their system, then we're going to see issues with endemic diseases which cause the backtracking that, that Calypso was mentioning earlier. And maybe actually I can go on to a question specifically about that. An excellent question that's been asked um, about uh, not only equitable allocation of resources, but an efficient allocation of resources. Because of, obviously we've been seeing through this crisis that health systems across the world have been tested right across the spectrum, you know, from the public health measures, the preventive measures, you know, that here in the UK we haven't dealt with the testing well at all. And I'm sure, you know, there's going to be a big post-mortem of that when, when this is finished. But then as well, you know, it's exposed lack of capacity for inpatient services, for ICUs, for, for ventilators, you know, very expensive, what, what we might say top-end services. Now, it's, it's quite interesting that a lot of the, the debate and the media fixation is on the big hospitals being built, you know, the dramatic, the, the ventilators, you know, Donald Trump was going on about it last night. Do you think there is a danger that even if we might see big increases in investment uh, in the health sectors, that the hospital sector and the tertiary sector are going to capture a lot of those resources? Because, you know, that is the type of stuff that, that sort of people in the big cities look to when they're seeing improvements of their health system. So how do we get a, a better, more equitable and efficient allocation of resources going forward? And, and you know, what are the tactics we might employ? Hmm. Okay, let, let me let me give it a go. And uh, I think the, the first thing I would like to say is uh, that actually I have looked at this whole thing, and I think the success, part of the success, may be in tertiary care, but I think the bigger part of the success is outside tertiary care. I think I would like to look at the German case, for example. German has a very low fatality rate. I mean, you look at why people think they have a low fatality rate, other than the availability of ICU beds and very high ratio of that, is that the first people have access. So people seek care early. People are able to seek care early because they don't fear about the cost. That's number one. Um, that even uh, then the testing capacity, that because there is a good public health infrastructure, you're able to test many people, isolate as you wish. So there's a public health element there, which is significant even before you go to, because we know even for this thing, we're talking about uh, maybe 5% of people requiring tertiary care. So if you don't handle the 95% the well, then you end up with a 5% overwhelming your system. So we need to look below the iceberg. Uh, what we are seeing now is the, is the iceberg. We need to look below the iceberg. Some of the areas that I would like to think about other than access, early response, and public health is lifestyle. There is, this is kind of an extra dimension we haven't looked at. Part of why, you know, the cases in Italy, we've said majority of them are ending up in moderate and severe uh, disease, maybe because of, um, of uh, uh, cases of, like, for example, smoking, for example, people's, uh, you know, um, NCDs, people, how many people have non-communicable diseases, you know, lifestyle diseases, which goes back to the big conversation around, you know, non-communicable diseases as a general uh, interest, as an important um, element of the health system. Iceberg, uh, we look at the tip of the iceberg, we'll find that it's actually public health and primary care that is significant. The other thing we must not forget is the effect outside COVID, that actually the impact of the, the, the entire population, 
beyond the COVID uh, response itself, is also going to expose health system fragility. Uh, vaccination, what is going to happen, for example, to number of kids who are vaccinated as they should be between now and post-COVID? Are we going to see declines because the health system was not able to respond to both COVID and the general needs? Are we going to see increased teenage pregnancy, for example? Because the youth, even in terms of access to family planning, adolescent family planning, was so shallow that the COVID has just tipped it over and now it's no longer being provided. So we have a big adolescent pregnancy issue. Are we going to see increasing maternal mortality because the health system was so fragile that we could not provide for maternal uh, health because we were responding to COVID? So if we look deeper below the tip, we'll find it's actually a primary health care issue. Other panelists like to come in on that? Yeah, Calypso. Yeah, sure. You know, unmute yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, I agree completely. And I'll, uh, I, just to reiterate uh, the importance of um, concentrating on also clinical effectiveness as well. I think we're we're uh, we're we're exporting measures, uh, some of which we're not sure that work in, uh, well enough in uh, high income settings. Um, and uh, this uh, uh, emphasis on high-tech fixes, I don't think there's a high-tech fix for this. Uh, the idea that uh, we're going to build up uh, massively within the next few weeks uh, ICUs across Africa um, and that this will save lives. The idea that we'll be able to train people to intubate safely, that we'll have uh, ECMO and uh, dialysis um, is also extremely problematic. Uh, the idea that uh, ICU saves lives is also problematic in this country, specifically in London. Up to 80% of people who uh, go into ICU end up dying, unfortunately, because they're severely ill. So we do need to concentrate minds on uh, on where we can save the most lives and protect the health service in every in every system and protect non-COVID services because people are also dying from non-COVID things. The death hasn't stopped. The death toll is continuing. And so I think it's absolutely important uh, not to be driven by analysis uh, designed in uh, developed nations, this sort of idea where we match ICU needs against ICU capacity, and this informs massive procurement exercises that drive uh, ICU ventilators being purchased and distributed without understanding or even wanting to understand uh, how these things are going to be deployed, who is going to use them, uh, and what does it mean in terms of distorting other priorities locally? And indeed, this money that's been committed uh, to this kind of service, what does it mean in terms of uh, uh, potentially saving lives? And of course, what does it mean when this thing ends? What's the message you're sending? That we need to build more hospitals? We need to have had a lot more ICU units around? Is this the message we want people to, to come away with, that uh, um, we're damned because we haven't built enough, uh, enough hospitals? I think that's a very problematic uh, messaging approach and needs to be tackled, I think, both uh, centrally in Geneva, London, Seattle, uh, but also at national level. Governments, uh, African leaders need to come forward, informed by evidence, and say, look, this is our plan. That's how we're going to save lives. That's how we're going to do it and tell people what it is they need in terms of commodities rather than the other way around. I think, um, you know, probably two points just to add into these great comments. One is around making sure that we don't have the, or making sure that we use this situation in order to, to solidify some issues which we know have been issues for a while. And one is around equity of access. 
um, what can we do in this to make sure that everyone is as protected as possible? And 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 it, and COVID is not just a situation of or we just all move on to COVID because we don't want to end up with these compounding problems that can go on for years afterwards if we completely divert towards COVID and we get about the other. Uh, aspects of primary health care. So it's a matter of how do you deal with COVID and how do you keep other services going as far as possible and how do you plan to catch up on those services? How do you plan to make sure that all of those children in this year's cohort uh, get their first year vaccines and all of the second year cohort children get their second year vaccines? How do you how do you make sure that we we mitigate for issues in the future that could come from the diversion here. Yeah, yeah. And oh, here's a good question that's just come in. And, and uh, honestly, I, I haven't asked this myself, um, but it's, it's come up from one of our audience members. Many countries have suspended user fees. What is the panel's view on whether these should be reinstated post-COVID and what can be done to influence governments to permanently remove user fees for the poorest? Thoughts on user fees? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that uh, the, the user fees, many of the cases I've seen have been very specific to the COVID response. There have been user fees removal for laboratory testing. Um, there have been user fees removal for COVID-19 related admission, rather than removal of user fees for access to family planning commodities, removal of user fees for mothers who are pregnant who need dental care for young children who need pneumonia and may die before their fifth birthday. So I think it needs to be looked at as a more large-scale uh, policy rather than responsive to COVID-19 alone. And this is the time to do it. Yeah, uh, so on, on user fees for COVID, and I think certainly other infectious disease are incredibly damaging because we don't have people coming forward when they have a problem until the problem becomes too bad. And then that infectious disease spreads. Um, and you end up paying much greater costs treating both the person when they're sicker and the people they're likely to pass it on for, which is why it's really important that we get rid of user fees for COVID. But but also, well, I mean, I'd get rid of them for everything ha happily, but but also for other infectious diseases, things like antibiotic res uh, resistance. Uh, when you test people uh, to see if they have a bacterial infection, you are much more likely to not give out an antibiotic that's not used. Um, I think the arguments that are being used to reduce user fees and get rid of them for COVID is incredibly applicable for all infectious disease as, uh, and hopefully will lead to a broader conversation about whether or not we should be charging for health. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's been very significant, isn't it? You know, that, that uh, just last week, uh, WHO put out this very strong statement uh, through the P4H initiative, very much recommending that countries do get rid of user fees for basically all services and all people as well. I think sort of recognizing that, you know, this idea of sort of trying to means test and saying to some people you're poor and you're not poor is totally inappropriate at the moment. And it does need to be truly universal. And I think there have been these very good examples of countries that have come out of crises caused by epidemics. One thinks of Sri Lanka in the 1930s that had a very big um, malaria epidemic. And that was basically the birth of their universal free publicly financed health system, which I think is proving pretty robust again to this this current epidemic. So I, I think just like, you know, you, you know, the panel saying really that to selectively say that we will only make this for 
COVID-19 cases is, is sort of illogical. You know, sort of Katinji's mentioned plenty of other situations where it's very important for people to access services. And of course, if you suddenly start feeling ill, you don't know whether it's COVID-19 or not. So you, you might go and get a test, be told, you know, no, that wasn't COVID-19. And now here's a big bill that we expect you to pay. And, that, and that, that's going to very much discourage people coming again. Um, perhaps one final question from the uh, the questions that are coming in here. And I think it is one that we need to uh, sort of address. Perhaps we don't do enough uh, in, in health. And I'm sort of thinking, uh, you know, Clip, so you might have sort of uh, thoughts about this. And that's levels of waste in the health sector and, and corruption as well. That, you know, if we're expecting governments to really invest in health and health services, you know, that is going to have a tangible impact on people's lives. It's vital that that money's not wasted because we've already identified uh, public money is going to be a very scarce commodity. So what are we collectively going to do to improve behaviour and improve transparency when it comes to public health spending? Thank you. I think I think there's institutional uh, perhaps solution with that Thailand has done having an agency dedicated to judging value for money from the local perspective of alternative interventions. This agency is, by the way, also involved. It's high up. They're also involved in the COVID response. Uh, we're seeing other countries, such as the Philippines, India, China setting up similar institutions, South Africa, Kenya, considering it. So uh, we need somebody who can uh, safeguard and drive investment decisions as there's an influx of new money um, so that at least there's a defensible process and some evidence that shows that uh, uh, those investments are indeed the right ones. Um, I think that's really terribly important and it needs to be driven locally. It needs to be done. Uh, locally. We have massive issues with absorbability. As you say, it's not just corruption, it's a big issue. Uh, the poorest the country, the poorer the country, the, the worse the rates of absorbability, budget execution. So uh, even countries like India, budget execution levels are very, very low. But the DRC, for instance, up to 50% of the very limited domestic resource allocated to health doesn't get absorbed. So I don't think the answer is to just say we want more money, but the answer is to have a plan and make a case as to how the money will actually bring about uh, health gains. And then, of course, you can have conversations also about other sectors. But right now, I don't think that uh, ministers of finance, treasuries can see that connection between spending uh, and then what they get from it in terms of, of uh, clear, tangible outputs. And we need to make that case stronger. And perhaps to finish on a positive note, uh, COVID is a good way or an opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. Are the panelists have thoughts on that? I would like to add the value. Yeah, I, I would like to add the, the value of, uh, and to everything Calypso has said, I'll add the value of social participation and social accountability, the role of people. Because everyone has a boss. You know, I have a boss, all of you on this panel have a boss, and the boss of the government is the people. The people are the ones who hold the government in, and they are the ones who can really hold them accountable. And therefore, how do we activate that force of social accountability by educating people on? Uh, budget advocacy, budget utilization, what, you know, so that even when there is under utilization, the people know and they can go to their local government and say, we know you had 100, but you only spent 70. Where, what, what, what talked to you? And uh, this would be important because then to put pressure on the executive, on the leg legislature to think about reforms in the Public Financial Management Act, which is one of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, problems when you're talking about budget utilization. So 
people, power, social accountability, and social participation, which is currently being worked on, would be an important part of answering that question. And I think I may have to drop off because I have a call right in two minutes. Uh, yeah. So if I drop off, you excuse. Yeah. Thank you very much. I agree. Thank you. We'll give an early, early thanks to Katinji, who's uh, fighting the UHC cause in, in, in Kenya. And, and you know, we, we wish you the best of luck and thank, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, today. Uh, other panelists, Susan, did you have a point you'd like to, to make there? I mean, I think Calypso and Gathinji covered it well. I think I'd probably add two more pieces to it. One is um, accountability for governments. A lot of that rests with people, with civil society. And I think that there are plenty of civil society organisations out there who do act as an accountability mechanism. And so I think um, uh, advocacy, uh, watching governments, looking at expenditure, becoming well-versed in how budgets are set, what allocative efficiencies look like. Also um, making the case um, for, for more expenditure in primary health care. Uh, I think uh, uh, just before we end, there's another dimension I want to bring in here that we haven't really talked about, and that's health workers. And I think one of the things we've seen from COVID is enormous support for health workers. My sister's a critical care nurse, so I, I mean, I'm worried when she goes to work. I'm sure there are so many families worried about those who are getting exposed just because they have a calling to to support and look after, in, in particular, the needs of people who are very vulnerable. So I think in this year of the health worker, it's really important to acknowledge not only have we seen support coming out from communities for health workers, but we've seen that there are not enough and that there, there is an exposure, there is a danger to the work. And if we are talking about budgets, it's not just about treatments and it's not just about high tech but it's also about supporting health workers and community centres and all of those places that provide and support public health needs. Yeah, yeah. I can completely agree. Can I can I finish with a final comment, bring it back to our research and say, just looking at the figures here, um, 22 of the 49 countries we looked at had major grassroots movements that preceded a move to universal healthcare coverage. 13 of them did it in the wake of democratisation. Um, and 10 of them, uh, there's some overlap between these, and 10 of them had major pushes from trade unions that preceded moves into universal health coverages. We also find that much more important than, than the amount of money a state has was the state's capacity. And obviously, states with greater capacity tend also to be wealthier, but it was the capacity and not the wealth, the quality of government's indices linked well with governments who are able to move into universal health coverage. And so, as well as thinking just about healthcare, thinking about broader development goals of strengthening democratization, strengthening freedom of speech, strengthening the quality of a government and its ability to deliver things, will all in turn lightly greatly improve the quality of health and people's lives more generally. Uh, at least that's what our research suggests. And thank you very much for bringing it back to, to that, Anthony, because I I think you know you you've encapsulated it, it, it very well that that. Uh, when we started thinking about you know, th this event and, and looking at the research, we hadn't anticipated we'd be in the middle of a crisis like this. You know, and, and now this has suddenly been thrust upon us. And I, I think that your research is completely being sort of vindicated that, you know, that this great crisis has flagged um, the, the weaknesses in, in health systems, as we're describing, right across the board. 
and that so many of the issues are of this universal health coverage nature. Everyone recognises that to tackle COVID-19, things have to be truly universal. Everyone has to get access to the vaccines. Everyone must hear the prevention uh, messages and, and everyone must get an equitable access to um, hospital services if, if they need them. So I think the case UHC um, is um, absolutely uh, essential. Now, um, we, we are very much coming towards the, the end now, and I'm not sure if we're going to get, you know, literally timed out at, at half past. But uh, I'd like to sort of bring our, our discussions to, to a conclusion to thank the panellists for, for, for joining. You know, it's Susan, Calypso, Anthony and Katinji who's had to call off, and the, the many helpers at ODI to make this such a successful event. Apologies for my technology problems at the beginning that maybe sound like a Dalek. Uh, but, but I've been delighted to be able to, to rejoin you through this process. And we look forward to, to fighting the cause for UHC. And just to say, we at Chatham House are very much interested in these issues of the political economy of UHC reform. So any people watching and fellow panellists, if, if you feel that we could be any help to you in fighting the cause for UHC, particularly promoting it to your uh, health ministers, your ministers of finance, but also heads of state, then do please get in touch. And we'll be wielding the ODI research as, as you know, a, a very good example of why countries should be moving to UHC. So thank you very much indeed, all of you, for joining. Goodbye now. On behalf of ODI, thank you as well. And thank you, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.